0: All right, well, I believe this is week six in our summer series on pleasing God. And uh, the last several weeks, we have been building a house. And that's the metaphor that we're kind of using to help guide our understanding through this series. And uh, we've already laid the foundation and built the framework. And now it's time to begin moving the furniture into the house. Um, There are four key passages in the New Testament where the phrase this is the will of God for you, is used. And Lord willing, over the next four weeks, including today, we are going to uh, consider those four passages. We know that from our previous sermons that pleasing God is tied to understanding and doing His will. And God is so gracious as to tell us without any qualification exactly what His will is for our lives in four big messages. So that's what we're going to be considering, Lord willing, over the next month. We can know without a doubt what God's will for our lives is, every single one of his children. So the first thing I want us to know about God's will that we're going to consider this morning is that he wants people to be saved. That is God's first desire. It's expressed in John chapter 6 verse 40 in the words of Jesus when Jesus says the following. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. John MacArthur says the following He says, either you're not saved from your sin and you need to come to Christ, because that is God's will, or you are saved and need to reach others with the message of salvation. There is a world out there that needs Jesus Christ. God wants them to be saved and you and I are the vehicles for the transportation of the gospel. That is God's will. You say you don't know what God's will is, but I'll tell you what it is. Above all, it is that you know Christ and that you make Christ known to your family, friends, neighbors, and coworkers. That is His will. So often we sit around twiddling our thumbs, dreaming about God's will in some distant future when we are not even willing to stand up on our own two feet, walk down the street, and do God's will right now, end quote. Without a doubt, God's will for every single one of us as his children is to make the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ known. This is exactly what Paul says, reinforcing what Jesus says in John 6:40. He reinforces it in 1st Timothy chapter 2 verses 1 through 6, which is going to be our text this morning. There Paul says in verse 4, who desires that is God our savior desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So that's what we're going to be considering this morning. This is the will of God Saved by Christ. We're going to unpack this particular text in 1 Timothy chapter 2 under three main headings. They'll basically break down to two verses each. That's nice when that happens. It doesn't always have to or, or need to, but it does in this case. So here's our first point that we're going to consider the primary task. The primary task that Paul gives. Now, why do I call it a primary task? Because of the way Paul begins it. In verse 1, you see there in 1 Timothy chapter 2, he says, first of all then. So this is primary for Paul. This is the primary task that he is wanting to remind the church of giving ourselves to. And it's the primary task of prayer. You say, what, is, what does prayer have to do with being saved by Christ? Everything. Prayer is the way that w- the gospel is advanced into pe- from our mouths into people's hearts. There's a huge difference. We can, we can preach the gospel all day long. But the only way it's going to affect anybody's heart is through prayer. And so that's why Paul begins with the primary task of prayer. So I want us to consider these first two verses uh, in five brief subpoints quickly. First of all, let's talk about the importance of prayer. Notice what Paul says here. He says, first of all then. So Paul uses Timothy, or urges Timothy to lead the church to pray first of all. And he he uses a very strong word. He doesn't just say, first of all, as though prayer is primary, but he also, I urge you. That's an intense, longing, strong desire. So Paul is saying, listen, I want you to be primarily and passionately concerned to do this. That's the importance of prayer. Second, the content. What does he want us to pray about? Notice what he says. First of all then... I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made. Now, Paul mentions four different types of prayers here, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings, and he, he probably doesn't intend by this phrase or these four words to give any precise delineation between different types of prayer, but rather he's simply charging Timothy to charge the church to offer all kinds of prayers. We need all different kinds of prayers. And the type of prayer that's required will often be dictated by the needs of the moment. So that's the content of prayer. Third, the focus for prayer. Paul tells Timothy not only that the congregation needs to pray, but he tells them for whom they should pray. He says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people. Now, included in the all people would be those spreading error within the church. We read about that in 1 Timothy chapter 1. For them, the church ought to pray that God would grant them repentance, like 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 25 says. But what's mostly in view here is all kinds of people. This is what Paul says in the beginning at verse 2. He says, I urge you that prayers be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high positions. Now, Paul here specifically identifies one type of person for which we ought to pray, or group of people that we ought to pray, and that's kings and all who are in high position. And this phrase refers to the governing authorities within, the, at that point, the Roman imperial context. Now, Paul directs Christians to pray for these rulers because kings and governors are empowered, as we will see in the coming verses, to enact laws and policies that either protect Christians and advance the gospel or make them a target for unjust treatment and threaten to shut down the gospel so here's why he, pray, he encourages us to pray for kings this is the reason for prayer look again at verse 2 he says that, so here's why we're praying for kings and all who are in high positions that we, that is Christians, may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way So the term translated peaceful means tranquil, quiet, untroubled from external pressures. Thus, such prayer would ask for governing authorities to conduct themselves in a way that keeps Christian churches safe from mistreatment, the kind of suffering and persecution that tempts believers to be unfaithful to Christ. So just to be clear, this peace and quiet is not, you know... of the get off my lawn variety. It's not just saying we just pray for kings and positions so that we'll just have an easy life. We just want an easy, undisturbed life. No, he's praying so that we would be able to live in such a way as the gospel would advance, that we would be untroubled from external pressure that would threaten the advance of the gospel. So the peace and quiet that Paul is encouraging us to pray for is not a personal one, it's a gospel one. It's not an ultimate end, it's a penultimate end. It has a, it has a goal attached to it. And the ultimate end is that the church might live in a godly and dignified way that would serve to advance the gospel. Now, godly and dignified. Those phrases, or those words, have to do with our vertical responsibility to love God and our horizontal responsibility to love neighbor. By godliness, Paul means the awesome respect that we have are to give to God and owe Him as our Creator and Redeemer. But also, dignity has to do with the manward ethical responsibilities that we have to love our neighbors. So godliness has primarily the duty to honor God, and dignity has, focuses primarily on the duty to love and honor our neighbors. Number five, the response to prayer. Now, prayer that pleads with God... For a peaceful and quiet life that serves to advance the gospel, notice what Paul says about it. Verse 3, this is good. This is good. Isn't it good to be reminded of what is good? Isn't it good to be reminded that when we pray this way, God is smiling? Isn't it good that when we pray and ask the Lord to work in such a way in our country and countries all around the world, we don't need to think this is just an American issue, but countries all around the world... Um, that we would be able, and that Christians would be able to live peacefully and quietly for the sake of the gospel. This is good, Paul says, and it's pleasing in the sight of God. So the term translated good indicates that this kind of prayer is morally praiseworthy. It's something that delights the heart of God. God commends such prayer in part because it's a prayer for God's moral standards to be upheld and His glorious gospel to be advanced. That's why it pleases God, because we are concerning ourselves with his concerns. We're asking for his people not to be mistreated. We're asking that they be allowed to carry out their obedience to him without interference. And likewise, such prayer is pleasing in the sense that it is welcomed by God. God is eager to hear such prayers. God welcomes the prayers of his people to be treated justly by the government. So that's the primary task. We give ourselves to prayer for kings and all those who are in high positions so that we might live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Second point, a genuine appeal. A genuine appeal, verses 3 and 4. Now Paul says here in verse 3 that this is good, this kind of prayer is good, and it's pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, verse 4, who desires all people to be saved... And to come to the knowledge of the truth. So that last phrase is all important. God's people are not merely praying for God to give us a peaceful and quiet life. We're not merely praying for our own personal godliness. But we're praying so that people might experience salvation through Christ. Now here's a verse that says in no uncertain terms that God's will is for all to be saved. This goes well with other verses that stress similar desires from God. It's a sincere and well-meant offer on the part of God for all people to receive Christ. Now, this is reinforced by Peter. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, where the apostle says that the reason that Christ is delaying his second coming is owing to the fact that The Lord is patient. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, that is the second coming of Christ, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is reinforced in the heart of the prophet Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 18, verses 23 and 32, the Lord speaks about his heart for the perishing when he says, Have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked? Declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live. I have no pleasure in the death of anyone. Declares the Lord God. So turn and live. And this heart of the Lord, that's reflected in the prophet Ezekiel, is often is also is lodged deeply in the heart of Christ. Remember when he was on the earth in Matthew twenty-three, verse thirty-seven he looked out at the people of Jerusalem who were largely rejecting the message of the kingdom that he was bringing. And he said, "O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? But you weren't willing. So, we have to recognize that this is deep in the heart of God, that he has a passion to gather people into his kingdom. He has, a, he has a, no pleasure in their perishing and their refusal to embrace Christ by faith. He is patient with this world and eager to receive all those who would come to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is good and pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all men and women and children and boys and and girls to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. So two quick things. This text is not saying that everyone is saved whether they want to or not. Okay, it's not teaching that, obviously. Neither this verse nor any verse teaches that all people will be saved regardless of whether they have faith in Christ. Remember, Jesus was looking out at Jerusalem and saying, I'm willing, you're not. (laughs) So he's not saving people against their will. But what this means then is that God desires and wills that all people be saved. So the question rises in our minds, well... What does this verse mean in light of the fact that in the end, all people aren't saved? They aren't. So let's talk about this tension. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4, Paul says with no uncertain terms that God wills all people to be saved. It's his desire. It's a genuine desire. He's not faking it. So what are we to say of the fact that God wills something that in fact doesn't happen? He desires it, and it doesn't happen. So there are two possibilities as far as I can see. The first one is there's a power in the universe that's greater than God's, which is frustrating him by overruling what he wills. You understand that? So that could be one possible answer, right? There's a greater power than God's desire to save all people. There's some external power out there. Maybe the will of man that's somehow greater than God's desire to save everyone. There's another possibility, though. And the other possibility is that God wills not to save all, even though he is willing to save all, because there's something else that he wills more, which would be lost if he exerted his sovereign power to save all. This is the solution that I believe is biblical. Now, just to be clear, that puts me more squarely in the Reformed camp than the Arminian camp, but both Calvinists and Arminians affirm two wills in God when they ponder deeply over 1 Timothy 2.4. This is not a Calvinist problem. This is a every Christian problem because both can say that God wills for all to be saved, Calvinists and Arminians. We all say that. Arminians often accuse Calvinists of not believing that, but that's just not true because we believe what the Bible says. It says here, God desires all people to be saved. We believe that. But then, when we're pushed why people are not saved, or all people are not saved, both Calvinists and Arminians answer that God is committed to something even more valuable than saving everyone. So we're both in the same, same boat. We just give different answers as to what that reason is. So what's the difference? Well, the difference between Calvinists and Arminians lies not and whether there are two wills in God. But in what they say the higher commitment is. So what is, what is God's will more than saving all people? Well, the answer given by Arminians is that human self-determination um, is more valuable than God's saving all people by sovereign grace. So it's, it's the respect for the self-determining will of man. But the answer given by Calvinists is that the greater value is the manifestation of the full range of God's glory in wrath and mercy, and therefore it's also the humbling of man so that in the end, all credit goes to God for salvation. So now, admittedly, this is a deep doctrinal discussion that lingers even into this day, And the infinite complexity of the divine mind is such that God has the capacity, as we saw last week even, right, to look at the world through two lenses. When God looks at a painful or wicked event in itself, like, say, the death of Jesus at the hands of sinful men by unjust treatment, or the treatment of Joseph in the wickedness of Potiphar's wife's betrayal and lying about him and all that, or Job's infliction by Satan, when God looks at those events in the narrow sense as painful and wicked, he sees the tragedy and the sin for what it is in himself, in and he's angered and grieved. This is why he says in Ezekiel 18, I do not delight in the death of anyone. But when God looks at a painful or wicked event in the broad perspective of his eternal plan, then he sees what we can't see. He sees the tragedy and the sin, but also he sees all that in relation to everything leading up to it and everything going out from it. He sees it in all the connections and effects that form a beautiful pattern and mosaic of his eternal plan that stretches out into eternity. And of this mosaic, with all its good and evil parts, he says, well-pleasing in the grand scheme of things. Now... Here's what John Piper says about that, because we can't, we can't, we can't, we're not God, so we can't get our minds around that. How can, how can God be in the narrow sense simultaneously displeased with the evil in the world and yet in the broad sense working it and using it without tainting his hands or staining him in any way, but using it for his greater glory and good. Here's what John Piper says about that. God's emotional life is infinitely complex beyond our ability to fully comprehend. For example, who can comprehend that the Lord hears in one moment of time the prayers of 10 million Christians around the world and sympathizes with each one personally and individually like a caring father? (laughs) We can't give our attention away like that. But God can, and yet some of his children are coming to him with broken hearts, and some of his children are coming to him with rejoicing and thanksgiving, and yet God is able to enter into both of those perfectly. How can God weep with those who weep and rejoice with those who rejoice as Thad told us and reminded us of our call as a church is when his people are coming to him with both at the same time? In fact, are always coming to him with both at the same time with no break at all. Or who can comprehend that God is angry at the sin of the world every day as Psalm 711 says, and yet every day, every moment, he's rejoicing with tremendous joy because somewhere in the world a sinner is repenting, according to Luke 15. Who can comprehend that God continually burns with hot anger at the rebellion of the wicked, grieves over the unholy speech of his people, like Ephesians 4:29 and 30 say, and yet takes pleasure in his people, as we saw in Psalm 149 a few weeks ago and ceaselessly makes merry over penitent prodigals who come home. Piper concludes and says, who of us could say what complex of emotions is not possible for God? All of us have and all of us all that we have to go on here is what he's chosen to tell us in the Bible. We don't have to reconcile it in our minds; we are just called to believe both. And what he has told us is that there is a sense in which he does not experience pleasure in the judgment of the wicked, and there's a sense in which he does. Therefore, I say unequivocally, unequivocally blah, blah, blah. Never use that word again, Mark. <laughs> so I affirm, without hesitation, with John 3.16 and 1 John 2.4 that God loves the world with a deep compassion that desires the salvation of all men. And yet I also affirm that God is chosen from before the foundation of the world whom he will save from sin. Since not all people are saved, we must choose whether we believe with the Arminians that God's will to save all people is constrained by his commitment to human self-determination or whether we believe with the Calvinists that God's will to save all people is restrained by his commitment to the glorification of his sovereign grace. Now, this decision, let me make this clear, should not be made on what you think. Or what you feel is fair. It should not be made on that. It should not be made on the basis of assumptions about what we think human accountability requires. It should be made on the basis of what the scriptures teach in their totality. Without trying to silence one part and affirm the other part. We must embrace it all. And here's the truth, brothers and sisters. I do not find in the Bible that human beings have the ultimate power of self-determination. It's not taught there. It's a philosophical, metaphysical assumption that we place upon the Scriptures. As far as I can tell, it's just a philosophical inference based on what we feel fairness requires. But God's will for all to be saved is not at odds with the sovereignty of God's grace and election. What restrains God's will to save all people is His supreme commitment to uphold and display the full range of His glory through the sovereign demonstration of His wrath and mercy for the enjoyment of His elect people from every tribe, tongue, and people and nation. Now here's the crux of the matter. The Bible teaches, as we see here in 1 Timothy chapter 2, that God seriously desires that all who hear the gospel should believe in Christ and be saved. It's a genuine appeal. That's why we're talking about it. But the same Bible teaches that God has chosen his own people in Christ from before the creation of the world. So to our finite minds, it seems impossible that both of those things could be true. But since the scriptures teach both eternal election and the genuine appeal offer of the gospel, we must continue to hold on to both even though we can't reconcile these two teachings in our finite minds. We should remember that we cannot lock God up in the prison of human logic. Our theology must maintain and hold to the tension of the scriptural paradox and leave it there. Just leave it. Leave it as a paradox. And it's going to make a tension in our souls, and that's okay. J.I. Packer says, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are taught side by side all throughout the Bible. Sometimes, indeed, in the same text, both are thus guaranteed to us by the same divine authority both therefore are true it follows that they must be held together and not played off against each other man is a responsible moral agent although he's also divinely controlled man is divinely controlled though he's also a responsible moral agent God's sovereignty is a reality and man's responsibility is a reality too all right We've talked a lot, that's a lot of theology on that distinction. I just want to show you very, very, I hope, quickly and succinctly in terms of illustration where this shows up in the teaching of Jesus. So hold your place in 1 Timothy 2, we're coming back, and I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, we're just going to look at one section of scripture that holds this tension out to us and doesn't resolve it, just leaves it there. Matthew chapter 11. And these are the words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 11, beginning at verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such is or was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Father or the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Now, there is no human self-determination in that text at all. What Jesus is saying, he's praying to God and he said, Father, thank you for not revealing yourself to certain people and thank you for revealing yourself to other people. This is selective revelation. He says, thank you for, for not revealing yourself to the proud or the, the, the self-appointed wise people. Thank you for revealing yourself to the broken, the poor, the little children, the people who are most helpless and needy. That's your good pleasure, Father. You're not trying to get in with the celebrity cult. You're not trying to get the attaboys on Twitter and Facebook and and getting the likes by all the popular people. You're saying, I'm coming and I'm going to reveal myself to those who are lowly. Then he says, this whole revelation process of who your father reveals himself to is committed to Jesus. Jesus says in verse 27, all things have been handed over to me and no one knows the Son except the Father and no one knows the Father except the Son. Well, how do we know the Father? He concludes, when the Son chooses to reveal the Father to you. That's when you begin to know the Father. So this is sovereign grace. This is sovereign election. This is selective revelation. But notice what he says in the very next verse. Come to me, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's a wide open invitation for anybody who wants to get in on this to get in on this. It's both, brothers and sisters. The Bible teaches both. (laughs) And we hold to both. Even if we can't understand it. Because I think Jesus is a little wiser than us and knows a little more about the Father than we do. And we say, Lord Jesus, if you have said it, I believe it. That settles it. I don't have to understand it. But I believe both. I believe in selective revelation and I believe in open invitation. Listen, friends who are here this morning, who have yet to come to Christ, your job is verses 28 to 30. Come to Jesus, all you who are weary and heavy laden. You're not to go to Jesus and say, Jesus, have you revealed the Father to me? That's not your business. Your business is to obey His commands. He doesn't command you to pray to Him to reveal the Father to you. He commands you to come to Him right now. That's your responsibility. And then when you do it, you'll look back once you get through the door, and once you've embraced Christ by faith, And once you've been immersed in baptism, you'll look back over the door and it'll say, chosen before the foundation of the world. That's what it says. Revealed the Father by the Son. To the glory of God the Father and God the Son. So it's both. It's both. And we hold to both. And we embrace both. So God desires authentically. It's a genuine appeal. It's not fake. You might think, well, I'm looking here at Matthew 11, and Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I mean, that's got to be a fake invitation because he's only going to reveal himself. No, that's not what he's arguing. He says, I have done what I'm going to do. Now you do what I require you to do, which is come to me. All if you 're weary, if you 're heavy laden, if you 're burdened by your sins, you're elect. Get in the family. <laughs> get in the family. You, have, you, are being, you are being shown mercy by God if you feel that way. Nobody who doesn't want to get in the kingdom is coming into the kingdom. There has to be a willing. This is not God saving people against their will. This is not like you're coming in, kicking and screaming, boy. No, God says, if you're willing, come. But we are made willing in the day of his power, as the scriptures teach. That's how we're made willing. So it's it's both. And we hold this tension as Jesus held this tension. It's in the same section of scripture. We've got sovereign election and universal invitation held side by side, and so that's what we teach. And listen, brothers and sisters, here's how this works in in terms of our practical Christian living. The reason why we, we focus on verses 28 to 30 as an invitation is because that's what all people need to hear. We're not there to talk to them about the intricacies of God's sovereign election with our responsibility and how that works together. We, they're invited to come to Jesus. It's a genuine appeal. God desires all men to be saved and to come to acknowledge the truth. And yet, when they do come, the comfort for the Christian is that God has loved them deeply and pursued them relentlessly. And chased after them and cared about them from before the foundation of the world. And it is a comfort and a security to the believer that we will be kept by this same God who has chosen us and pursued us and loved us. So it's not meant to be a a disincentive to stay away from the kingdom. It's meant to be something that encourages us that, in fact, as we come to Christ, we know that's not, wait, that's coming because God loves me. The reason why I want to come to Christ is because God loves me. And as we do that, we recognize that we are chosen. I, I love um, Elder D.J. Ward, who was the pastor of um, Main Street Baptist Church in, uh, in Lexington for a number of years. He's gone on to be with the Lord, but um, one of my favorite preachers to listen to. And uh, deeply passionate about the Lord, deep, deeply passionate about the doctrines of grace. And I've showed a, a clip of his... Uh, I'll, I'll send it out to you this week via email if you'd like to watch it, but it's a clip from a sermon that he preached either in the early 2000s or in the late 90s um, where uh, he, was t- he, 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 he starts talking about that the church this morning, the church is standing this morning and the church is moving this morning because of the principle of election and that election is keeping the church in the world and keeping the church strong. And then he, he turns and he asks his congregation, do you remember when he started to get you? do you remember, he said, when you were going to the, and he's using, he's using analogies of going to the bar and things like that, and he says, do you remember when you were going to the bar, and, 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 and it didn't feel right, and, and he said, you're going to the bar, and the beer went flat, and the music was too loud, and, and you felt like, you know, you know, I got to get out of here, it's, it's, it's 12 p.m., and all your friends are looking at you, like, man, why are you leaving at 12, you got till 2, 3 a.m., we can stick around, and no, no, I got to go, and, i just not feeling good right now, and so he said, go home, and then he said, uh, you end up going to church on Sunday with Mama, and you're just, you know, listening to the preacher talk, and, just, and then your friends catch you later in the week, and they say, hey, man, where were you on Sunday? We were expecting to see you down at the bar, and he's like, "Ah, oh, I went to church with Mama. You know how Mamas are. They bug you, and, you know, so I just went there. I just went there, you know, just for Mama, and he's like, and he's like, yeah, but you weren't, you weren't there on Wednesday. He's like, he yeah, I went to prayer meeting. I went to prayer meeting, too, and. And he goes, you know, my, he's like, you know, I'm dating this girl and she asked me to go. And you, you know how girlfriends are. He's like, but I'm with you all. You know, I'm with you. You know, we together. And then he starts sharing this story. And then he, and then he goes, he's like, so are you going to be there? He's like, nah, probably not next week. Nah, I'll probably go back to church. He's like, that man hollers and he talks. He's like, but, you know, I'll probably go back. And then, and then he stops right in the middle of the sermon. He goes, that's not what's happening. And he goes, he's like, the Holy Spirit is drawing you. He's drawing you. He's drawing you. And he's like, and then when you get in, you will know that you've been chosen before the foundation of the world. So it's just a beautiful illustration of how the Lord begins working on us and slowly drawing us to himself. I'll send you that out. Nobody can preach like Elder Ward. You better get ready. So Elder Ward's the real deal. But I'll send that out to you all later this week. All right, number three, final point. That was the longest, by the way, and since it's the meat of the sermon, uh, we'll, get, we'll, we'll be wrapping up here in just a couple of minutes. Number three, an exclusive option, an exclusive option. Look, let's turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 2 and look at verses 5 and 6. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. So God desires all people to be saved, and these verses explain that there's only one way for them to be saved. There's one option. There's only one God, and this means there's only one plan of salvation, His plan. God has appointed His Son, Jesus, to be a mediator between Himself and sinners, and Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead in order to heal the breach between a holy God and sinful man. In this way, the man Christ Jesus affects reconciliation between God and mankind. And brothers and sisters, what should, when we read those verses, what, she, we should be, what we should be saying in our own hearts and with our own mouths is, praise God that we have a way. There's so many people in the world who will say, well, you know, God, God, God should give us mul- multiple ways. No, God should give us no way. <laughs> that 's what we deserve, no way. And the fact that God has given us one way, one incredible way, through the Lord Jesus Christ and His death on the cross and his resurrection is amazing, amazing grace. And notice what Jesus said or uh, Paul says that Jesus did. He gave himself in verse six means that no one took Jesus' life from him. He laid it down of his own accord. Jesus offered himself freely on the cross as a ransom, meaning that he died in the place of sinners to pay the price owed by them for their sin. This statement is likely a variation on Jesus' own words in Mark 10:45 where he says the son of man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Now the ransom price, according to Genesis 2:17, Romans 6:23 is death. Sin deserves judgment. Jesus takes that judgment upon himself when he dies on the cross and by his death, he provides full forgiveness of sins for all those who come to him. By his resurrection, he offers eternal life. He is a ransom for all. This ransom, however, is only effective for those who come to him. So that is the picture here. It's an exclusive option given to us. And if you're here this morning and have yet to embrace Christ, I just, again, call you to Christ right here. He's a ransom offered for you. He's given freely for you so that you would come and embrace him. God wants you in the family. God desires your salvation. He does not delight in your death. His heart yearns to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks. Are you willing? Are you willing? And if you're not, it's not because he didn't want to. It's not because he didn't want to. Now, let's conclude with some applications. I'm going to go back to John 6:40. John 6:40, 40. Um, and this is the phrase that I quoted from Jesus at the beginning of the sermon, that this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him will be given eternal life, and God will raise them up on the last day. So I want to conclude with this encouragement to us as believers. Because I know the vast majority of us in this room are in the family of God. We are saved by grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to encourage you this morning that you have a great future awaiting you and you are presently enjoying a glorious eternal life that's only going to get better. You have it right now and it's going to get better. So, first of all, God wants you to know that he is, if you have looked to the Son and believed in Him, then you have eternal life and that God will raise you up on the last day. Now, let's just meditate in conclusion about what this last day will consist of. Right now... Brother and sister in Christ, you have the free gift of complete forgiveness for all of your sins extending into forever. Isn't that good news? We need to be reminded of it every day of our lives. We have the free gift of complete forgiveness for all of our sins because Jesus paid it all. Also, you need to know that you will never, ever have to earn your justification by keeping the law. You'll never have to earn your justification by keeping the law, because Christ has kept it for you. You're going to have all your real needs provided for personally by Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? Every single one of our real needs flows through the hands of our compassionate Savior to us. Even if He sends an angel to deliver them, they're coming from his heart first. Philippians 4:19, "My God will supply all your needs my God will do it according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus and how wealthy is your father riches and glory is what he's how wealthy he is and know this you'll receive all the grace you need at all times so that you will abound in every good work that God has for you he will never call you into a circumstance that he will not give you grace for second Corinthians 9 8 God is able to make all grace abound toward you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. God will give you all the grace you need for everything you encounter. God will complete, Philippians 1.6, the good work that he has begun in you. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty two and 53 remind you that you will be raised from the dead and never, ever, ever die again. 1 John 3.2 Someday soon, you're going to see Jesus with your own eyes and you're going to be with Him and be like Him. And in that day, you will know for the first time in your life full, undiluted, unpolluted joy. You'll be completely free from all corruption and you will have God forever and God will be Your exceeding joy. And that's just a small sampling. The joy that is set before us is the same joy that Jesus had set before him that caused him to endure the cross and despise the shame. You have that same joy to look forward to. The joy that he enjoys in the presence of his Father is the joy that we will enjoy in the presence of our Father. There will be no difference because you're an heir of the kingdom with him. And he's going to make sure that you enjoy it as much as he does. Let's pray. God, we're grateful. We're grateful for salvation. We're grateful that you called us to yourself. We're grateful that you've worked on our hearts and worked in our lives. We're grateful that you gave us a task, that you gave us a responsibility to take this glorious good news to our family and our friends and our neighbors and our co-workers and those with whom we interact Lord we're thankful that we have a genuine appeal from your heart that God desires all men to be saved all women all boys and girls to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth we're grateful that there is a real offer on the table when we speak it it is a real offer it's not fake it's not being it's not it's not it's not trick it's not double jeopardy it's none of that it's it's complete free heart engaged offer on the part of the father toward all men and women and we are grateful we're grateful that you that you've given us christ we're grateful that he's done all that we need for our salvation and lord we just want to conclude this sermon in prayer in prayer for the children that are in our families and those who sit in this In these chairs, week after week, we pray that they would come to Christ. We pray that they would feel your heart for them, that they would come and embrace the Savior. We pray that they would feel your strong desire to save them. And we pray that they would not doubt and linger no longer, knowing that all they need is need and nothing else. We thank you that you have supplied everything else. And even you are the one who makes us willing And you are the one who works in our heart to incline us to believe and to give us the gifts of faith and repentance because you love us so much and you want us in the kingdom. So we're grateful. We're grateful. And we rise to worship you in just a moment in light of that truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, praise God for his word, and let's stand together and respond in song.